This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We have another advocate, uh, a legal advocate, uh, Kara Shin, who is our next speaker. And um, Ms. Shin, if you'll come to the podium. Um, Kara is the managing attorney for the mental health unit of the Public Defender's Office of San Francisco. So we are delighted to have her for the first time at our podium. And I know you're going to be talking about a lot of topics, mental health issues, legal defense, and developmental disabilities, and bullying, and all sorts of things. So educate us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And Jeff. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I love to attend medical conference, even though I'm not a doctor, but I grew up with 12 doctors. My grandparents, my parents, my uncles, and aunts. And each time I attend a uh, <clears throat> conference, I always feel um, very hopeful, warm, and fuzzy, because I get to learn all the innovative uh, treatment techniques, best practices. It's very inspiring. But when I attend legal conference, it's a little bit, <laughs> I hate to say it, <laughs> cold, hard, impersonal. Uh, sometimes we talk about justice, deterrence, um, lack of confidentiality, and, and really whether you are a defendant, an offender, or a victim, uh, it really uh, puts the person in a very traumatic um, position where at the end of that legal experience, it's really hard to make them go back to the status quo. Um, I'm going to share um, what I know because that's what I do for a living. I represent clients uh, with mental disorders, which is the psychiatric uh, uh, with di psychiatric diagnosis, or the clients uh, with developmental disabilities. And I also represent clients who are in the criminal court who uh, are found not competent to stand trial, who may or may ha not have uh, <clears throat> developmental disabilities. So I'm going to go in and we're going to talk about, first of all, bullying. Now, I would like to have one of the audience. Laura, are you here? Laura, can you read the definition of bullying um, for me? Let me see. Thank you. Hello. Okay. Bullying. Any severe or pervasive physical or verbal acts or conduct, including electronic communications committed by a pupil or pupils that has or can be reasonably predicted to have the effect of one, of one or more of the following. Reasonable fear of harm to a person or property. Substantially detrimental effect on physical or mental health substantial interference with academic performance, substantial interference with the ability to participate in or benefit from school services, activities, or privileges. Thank you, Laura. You're welcome. Give her a hand. For, for a non-lawyer, you're doing a great job. So it's a mouthful. Just bullying. You bully someone. Somebody got upset as a result of you. It's the act, the bullying act. That's it. But this is the definition, and we have to break it down. 
And I, I share with you because this is codified in the California Educational Education Code, and also this is it's posted in San Francisco Unified School District. So for, um, I saw some of the attendees' name card. I know you're not from California, or you may be from another county, so welcome to San Francisco. So it's always a good idea to go to your local area to look up the Unified School District. What are their policies? What are their rules? What are their definitions? Um, so it's very, even in, in California, it's very county specific. So in San Francisco, uh, if you go on their website, uh, they will define different types of bullying, and I don't see it in Alameda County website. So um, in San Francisco, they mention uh, cyberbullying, which is very, uh, we read about it all the time. Facebook, social media, uh, of text, uh, image, um, a sound or a video, uh, that counts cyberbullying, if that triggers upset on the person who is receiving the message. And the verbal bullying, that's very obvious. Physical bullying, it's act of biting or hitting. Uh, social or relational bullying, and that's kind of like people have a click and try to be exclusionary, excluding someone into that social group. Uh, that's also, that, that act is also considered bullying. Nonverbal bullying uh, is a gesture, staring, stalking, um, and destruction of property. So it's, it's um, not, jet, not a, a verbal, not a physical, uh, but it's something that um, kind of latent, it's kind of hard to detect. The last one is indirect bullying. It's intimidating or peer pressure on someone to cause harm to a third party. So it's indirect uh, bullying. So if uh, my child goes to school and someone bully her, um, she comes home really upset, and this child cut in front of me when we were standing in the cafeteria, is that bullying or that's a new behavior? So we need to sort of pay attention when we get the message, when we want to make that report of that incident, we need to think about it and organize our facts. So if it was just one isolative incident, if the incident is done unintentionally to cause someone else to be upset, such as um, <coughs> saying, oh, I'm great and you're, you're not smart because I got an A today. So that may not be constitute bullying. That may be just somebody being inconsiderate. So what we look for is those conduct that is a pattern. Yesterday he said this, today he did this, and in the afternoon, he said the same thing. So when you make your reporting, then people will pay attention. It's just not one uh, isolative incident. So that's... Speak a little more in here so the overflow room can hear you. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> that was a very helpful hint. <laughs> See? That's so, so we need to... So it's, it's really hard when it's my child... And when it's the victim, and so, so when we go to the school board, when we go to the teacher, we make the reporting, write it down. Documentation is very important. Uh, and especially um, clients or patients or your loved one who is nonverbal. 
and who is constantly being picked on someone who's really bad. And there's nobody to defend this, per, this child. Uh, there, and, and this child cannot express how she feels, but you know that she's upset. Uh, you know her um, daily routine has changed. So um, my daughter studies um, cognitive behavioral science, and she wants to use art therapy to help with trauma victims. So having a piece of paper say, draw, what happened? Tell me how you feel. That's important. Uh, or if we're very lucky, we ask questions around our child's friends, care provider, see if there's a third-party witness who saw the incident, and that will be very powerful. So documentation, searching for third-party witness, and then make your report. And in San Francisco, once you make your report, they have two days to ask you to file a complaint. And they will investigate, and they will do a resolution of, of the um, complaint. And that some, sometimes in San Francisco, it's counseling, therapy, uh, behavioral modification of the wrongdoer, uh, for severe and pervasive bullying that triggers a lot of harm, then that student may face um, expulsion or suspension. And if that comes, if the, your loved one is the offender, you can contact the San Francisco Public Defender's Office or your local public defender's office. They may have a juvenile unit, and the juvenile unit, they, juvenile unit, they have an educational expert who goes to the school or maybe advise the family how to do these administrative hearings so you can prevent your child to be to reduce from an expulsion to a suspension, or maybe a suspension to something a little bit more benign. Because if my child has special needs. I need to let them know, and they should not penalize uh, like a child who uh, is without the special needs. So they need to take those mitigating factors into consideration. So that's very important. And, I, um, and if there is no criminal code that says for, if you committed a bullying act, you're going to be prosecuted. So the act of bullying, depending on how it's done, for example, um, I'm going to kill you, I'm threatening to kill you, or actually hit somebody. If it's serious enough, if there's a physical like bite mark, or um, if there is um, like cutting that requires suturing, um, then they, the, the report will escalate to the San Francisco Police Department or to the local police department for incident report, and they can file charges uh, against, excuse me, against the individual uh, who committed the act. Uh, so it could be an assault, battery, or terrorist threat, um, <clears throat> or hate crime. So for, if that does happen, uh, if your loved one or your patient or your client is a um, <clears throat> Victim, then you, it's best to contact the local district attorney's office to make sure that the, uh, the individual uh, gets support from the... Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
make sure the individual gets support from the um, victim services and advocacy unit. So when I contacted her office and I said, what kind of services you can offer? Well, we will pay for the mental health counseling, we will pay for relocation, we will pay for um, sometimes vicarious um, victims, the family members who are also traumatized, so they will give support. Um, for example, if the regional center through Medi-Cal pays for the uh, counseling, but if you have to pay anything out of pocket, you can submit the bill and say, please reimburse me. Um, and also for um, victims, if they are uncomfortable testifying in a courtroom, they have therapy doc to assist the victim uh, to feel more comfortable so they can testify, just, just to calm down their nerves a little bit. So that's um, from a victim perspective. Um, <clears throat> and if the victim, unfortunately, um, is nonverbal or have, or have um, a lot of difficulty express, expressing his or herself, it's very important to contact the provider um, and let um, the district attorney's office, the victim service uh, caseworker, that probably you, the, he or she needs uh, trauma-informed uh, uh, approach to help her uh, through the case during litigation and use trauma-specific intervention. So the victim will not be um, impacted and scared and feel stressed during the pendency of the case. In the unfortunate event, if the person is being charged with a crime as a result of bullying or other um, serious criminal offense, uh, please um, don't be afraid. And it's always just take a deep breath. How many of us uh, in our car, we have an emergency kit? Can you raise your hand? Yes. So if your child, your client, um, or your patient has developmental disabilities, it's very important to have a fact sheet. The name, the provider, the caseworker, medication, what are the triggers, what are the things calm him or her down, what are the things that this person needs. And if, in the unfortunate event, um, my client, at the time of the arrest, it's very important for the family to come forward and fax that letter to the attorney or fax the letter to the people who are in charge of the investigation of the case. And in San Francisco, we have two pilot projects. One is called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. So let's say the case, it's being reported to the school district. It's pretty serious, but this is the first time. So when the police come to the school and gather information, and they say, well, it's a very low-level criminal activity. It's upsetting, but we're going to give this person a chance. They will not be booked, and they will be diverted in the community to do therapy, counseling, or community service work, and after a period of time, and there's no um, recidivism, no reoffending, then they will let this case go. So that's one of the legal remedies. The second one, it's called Pre-Arraignment Release Unit, PRU. It started last October, and uh, when people are booked in the county jail, um, 
public defender's office, we have two attorneys and one investigators. We will interview the client, review the discovery. When we say discoveries, police report, chronology, investigation. As much as we can get within hours of their booking, we try to take photos if our clients are being beaten. So we preserve the evidence. And then we will try to get the clients released before their court date. So shorten their stay in, in custody. And that would definitely really help to not to have um, our clients with special needs being traumatized in such a horrific setting. And if the person does not get released, sometimes um, maybe the charges are serious or maybe um, the victim's family are pressuring uh, prosecution. Uh, we also have a bail unit uh, that will file bail motions to try to reduce the bail. A judge should not set a bail that is so high somebody could not afford it. So it is a big thing in California right now. Uh, it's a bail reform. So that would help the client to post bail if the bail is if, if it's affordable so they can litigate the case in out of custody and allow the client to connect, reconnect with the provider, get treatment, get counseling while the case is pending. So that's, it's very important because it reduces the stress of the clients and also it helps the attorney to connect with the client's support circle so we can figure out a defense. And if the case goes to court and if we have gathered enough information, and convince the judge to allow the client to what we call diversion. It's kind of similar to the law enforcement assisted diversion, but this is already booking and formal complaint has been filed and allow the client to do therapy, to do community service work. And also um, our San Francisco district attorney um, likes to do restorative justice. So Maybe everybody sit down, the offender apologizes to the victim, and the victim accepts the apology. Or if they destroy uh, some property, they will repay the property. And afterwards, everybody shakes hand and have a nice closure, and the case will be dismissed. So that sometimes that kind of outcome could happen. But if the case is so serious and it's not going anywhere, uh, it's not resolving right away or dismissal, um, San Francisco has collaborative courts. People with um, mental illness, um, psychiatric mental illness, or developmental disabilities, or um, sometimes people are, who are veterans, uh, who, are, uh, who have a history of or substance abuse, they, we have different courts. We have drug court, veterans court, um, behavioral health court, misdemeanor behavioral health court, and also um, youth court. <laughs> transitional youth age course. So it depends on the offense and their eligibility criteria. Basically, we try to use the judge's uh, black rope effect to encourage compliance with treatment and hopefully after a period of time when the client does demonstrate ability to engage and there are no reoffending. Uh, incidents, then they would dismiss the case, or they would reduce from a felony to a misdemeanor, or they would reduce the time of being on probation so the client can become reintegrated back to the community without having to worry, I have this criminal case um, hanging around. And sometimes um, at this stage, a lot of family members call me, anxious mom, um, 
loving sisters or loving father or brother. Like, I want to know what's going on with my son. What's happening with the case? And I said, I can't talk to you. I don't have a release of information. <laughs> and if it's a minor, then I can talk to the parents. But if it's an adult, it's difficult. So how do we get at least our foot into the door? How do we at least get to share information? I, meant, I remember I mentioned the fact sheet, so you can always send me a fact sheet. You can always talk to me. I don't want to be rude, but I won't be able to talk to you and discuss the case in detail. But there is a way. Um, I think it's good to have something to allow you to have a seat at the table. And that would be my suggestion. It's the limited probate conservatorship. So what a limited probate conservatorship does in, in California is to give a responsible person, generally it's a family member, uh, as a limited conservator, certain rights to care for another adult who has a dis developmental disability. And who is eligible, I believe that the regional center can make the assessment and you use the assessment to file the paperwork. You don't need a lawyer. You can go to the help center in the courthouse to try to get the form and fill it out. Um, the powers of the limited conservator is quite extensive. Um, you can look at the confidential paper of the adults, confidential paper. You can decide where the, the adult live. Um, you can give and withhold consent for most of the medical treatment, and you can make decisions about the adult's education and vocational training. Um, you can even make decisions whether or not to place the adult in a state hospital or developmental uh, center for treatment, um, and give and withhold consent to the adult's marriage. That's, and it's a little bit difficult. I think the, the law kind of said that if the adult the, with disability is in danger in a relationship, then the limited conservator can step in. Um, so it has a lot of power, but I have to tell you in San Francisco, I check with the public guardian, we don't have limited probate conservatorship. We use general probate conservatorship um, to give the conservator that power. Yes, yes. It's not mental health. Mental health conservatorship is under the Lenterman Patrick Short Act, which is not covered on today's topic. But I can talk about a story at the end. I'll share with you how to transition somebody from mental health to developmental. But this is only for an adult with developmental disability. But in San Francisco, I have, um, although that's not the area of my practice, but I do know that uh, adults with developmental disability they have a conservator, and it's a general probate conservatorship. It's not a mental health conservatorship. Thank you for the clarification. So, um, <clears throat> so with that piece of paper from the court, certainly would allow the public defender to talk to you or the defense attorney to talk to you. So, and the limited public conservator can get compensation uh, from the estate of the conservatee. Um, you will be under supervision for the first year. Someone from the court will review the case, and then they will review uh, once every two years. 
and the liabilities is only if the limited conservator is negligent, like embezzling money, doing something that's inappropriate. So, um, and you really don't need a legal representation to file the paper. So that's a good tool, at least to get you legitimize your ability to talk to someone and be helpful in the process. Um, if the case kind of comes in, the client, uh, the, the adult with developmental disability is unable to understand the criminal proceeding and it's not able to take advantage of the resolution that I mentioned before, the possibility of diversion, getting dismissed, getting them out of jail, and figure out what the legal remedies are while they're in, out of custody. Um, sometimes um, I even have a client who's have two misdemeanor cases in San Francisco, one in another county, actually was found not competent to stand trial. Um, he is working with a regional center in the state of California. And so what constitute incompetent to stand trial is the inability to understand the nature and purpose of the criminal proceedings pending against him or her, understand his or her own status and condition in the criminal proceedings, and assist in a rational manner his or her attorney in representing his or her case. So usually when the doubt is raised, the judge will suspend the criminal proceedings against the client. And what would happen is that the client uh, will not be prosecuted and will be asked to, have, to be examined by a court-appointed alienist um, um, expert. So if I know my client which is the fact sheet, it's helpful that I know my client has developmental disability, I would try to ask the court, we will need to get an expert that's in that field of specialty. So the assessment will be more accurate, will be helpful. And what the alienist will look at uh, is four capacities. Factual understanding of the proceeding, rational understanding of the proceeding, ability to consult with attorney with reasonable degree of rational understanding, and ability to assist counsel in preparing a defense. <clears throat> Those are pretty daunting tasks. Even my clients without uh, special needs still get very stressed, distressed, and we, we, we have to hold their hands. And they also look at decisional capacity, which to put up, whether to put on a defense, Erase one or more affirmative defense. Affirmative defense is like when some, the reason I hit somebody is because I'm protecting my life. That's affirmative defense. Uh, waiving the right to a jury trial to decide whether or not a judge will be a better trial, try, trier of facts, will be de determining the facts, or to have 12 people that never met you before and come and make a decision about your faith, so to speak. Uh, take whether or not to take a stand as a witness, or is my client able to take the pressure? Uh, waive the privilege against self-incrimination, giving statements. Uh, decline to confront a witnesses. So in, in cases where the defendant is nonverbal, or when the victim is nonverbal, uh, the right to confront witnesses is a big part. That's why if neither party could do this, they have to suspend the criminal proceeding. It's a violation of their due process rights if you continue to prosecute someone who is not able to defend him or herself. 
And in this type of situation um, that I mentioned, one of my clients has two misdemeanor cases in San Francisco County, one in another county. Uh, we were able to convince the judge not to remand him in custody and allow him to do the program in the community, and we did a lot of work. We map his schedule throughout the week, make sure that he has supervision throughout the week, and there are caseworkers following him. And he comes to court maybe once uh, every two months, and within six months or so, if he completed his treatment, completed his treatment plan, he did not pick up a case, those cases will be dismissed. So it, it's, it's doable, but it takes time, and that's why I always go back to that fact sheet. It's very, very important. And um, I will not be complete for talking about um, mental health issues and legal defense for development mentally disabled individuals without mention, which I don't like to talk about. It's the Welfare and Institutions Code 6500. Um, I don't do a lot of these cases, maybe one or two a year in San Francisco. It's rarely filed. And the law has changed since uh, 2012, so the commitment is not lengthy and indefinite. Um, so there are two types um, after 2012. One is based on dangerous criteria, and that is for someone who is um, committed a crime and is not competent to stand trial. So I have one case, which is the person committed a murder, 187. So this person is committed under 6,500. And it used to be I will continue to follow the case every year for extension of the commitment, and now it's done in Tulare County. So Tulare County's public defender's office will be following that commitment. The other one is a civil commitment. When someone is in the time, it's in acute crisis and they need to be committed. And it's very rare. It only happens when once in a while our clients are in the home and it's becoming 17 and a half and he needs to go to adult facility while we're waiting. The licensing and all the things required is to have a 6,500, just like a placeholder, until this person is safely transitioned uh, into a home and then I will make sure the commitment is terminated. So it doesn't go, it used to be every year is renewable. Now it's 180 days, and then they will only give you another 90 days. The court will only allow to give another 90 days to extend to make sure the transition of placement has completed. The individual is no longer in acute crisis mode, and they can be safely live in the community. So I, in closing, I just wanted to share... Um, I started working um, in the mental health unit in year 2000, and to me, uh, developmental disability was really a foreign language to me, and in court, uh, we don't use intellectual disability, we don't use cognitive disability or developmental disability, we just use one term, a lump. Just, just uncompressed for the whole thing. And sometimes some attorney will say, my client has a mental health issue. And then it turned out it's developmental disability. It's, it's not psychiatric. So if we know, if we are providers, take the time and explain the difference. Um, I think the person who gets the information would appreciate because it's really, for me who's been doing it for a while, it's really sounding like, okay, 
let's, let's go back and, and let's distinguish if they are very different. So um, I have a client who was born deaf and mute, um, and he has an adoptive parents. The father is a sign language interpreter, the mother is a writer. And he was um, found to be unable to uh, live in the community. He was placed at Napa State Hospital. At that time, there was a death unit, people with hearing impair. So after, by the year of 2006 and seven, Napa State Hospital say, we no longer want to renew his conservatorship. I don't care. You're going to put him on the street, but we don't want him because they no longer have a death unit. And thank God the adoptive parents was very good um, record keeper. They found something years before that, um, like five years old, right after he was born, there was assessment by the regional center said that he has autism. Haha, so we said, well, let's talk to the regional center. But because my client had a history of put out 15 staff member out of commission, nobody wants to touch him. <sighs> so it took me two years. I bring regional center lawyer, regional center social worker. I bring the mental health people, the conservator. Two years. Every other week, I want them to come to court. So what are you going to do for my client? He needs a place to stay. I know that if I'm greedy, I ask for a whole pie, I'm not going to get it. So thank God I'm Chinese. I'm a good bargain person. So I asked, <laughs> I asked one slice of the pie at the time. And I said, look, he's in risk restraint 75% of the time. What can you do as a regional center if you cannot provide a placement? What services can you provide in Napa to augment that so we can reduce his quality uh, of being have to being uh, in risk restraint the, the length of time and to improve his quality of life so they brought in two assess person to work with him and then somehow miracle happened these two people said Napa State Hospital is not the appropriate placement for him I said haha okay so let's look for one <laughs> So every two weeks we come back, so have you seen one? Sierra Vista, this place turned him down, that place turned him down. Then we found Porterville. So I don't like Porterville. I said, where is Porterville? So I look at the map so far away. And his adopted mother has industrial um, allergy. She can't go to a certain place. So she was like, I can't go there. I may, I may have allergy. So we work with the client, and finally they got him a best space at Porterville. So... When he went there, I was very scared because everybody, I think the staff from Porterville have to go to Napa to learn about his sign language. His sign language is not the conventional sign language. It's something he make up, and only the people that work with him knows what he meant by doing this and that. And so they learned that, and they did, they did really have a thoughtful transition team, and so it helps to be persistent and be a pain in the butt. So coming to court every other week, so they make the report. So finally he went to Porterville, and I learned that the treatment modality is different from Napa. And so I really wanted to know how he's doing because we've been working with him for so many years. So one day I went to Porterville, I went to the unit to visit him, and I saw this man sitting, his back turned towards me. He was sitting at a table having lunch, with three other people. He's not in restraint, risk restraint. He was walking around freely. And then the staff told me, he said, he goes to a party. He even has a girlfriend, too. <laughs> oh. 
And so the last time I checked with the social worker, I believe he's living in a boarding care in the community. So it takes the village to help someone with special needs. It takes compassion. It takes commitment. And I think we can make the impossible possible. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.